0: I think we all know, don't we, that our television screens and the internet are full of horrendous stories. 9th of August, 2018, 29 children killed and 30 wounded in a Saudi-led airstrike strike in Yemen. Only last week, my newspaper told how fleeing Burmese refugees had to endure the brutal killing of children, gang rape, arson. Christians suffer. More than 200 million believers in 50 countries experience high levels of persecution because of their faith. In 2018 alone, over 3,000 Christians have been killed for their belief in Jesus. As we read these headlines, are we tempted to ask the question, where is God? Why does he do nothing? The first two verses of our psalm that we read at the beginning of our service are full of praise. The later verses speak of a God who's never forsaken his people. And we might Read the beginning of the psalm and think that David is in a relatively good place. And yet, when we read verse 13, it tells us, O Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy on me and lift me up from the gates of death. And if we read the psalm more closely, we discover that it talks about people who are oppressed, verse 9, afflicted, verse 12, persecuted, verse 13, who are needy, verse 18. Neither does this psalm speak of someone who's suffering at the hands of an individual like Psalm 7 did when we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Instead, it repeatedly refers to nations. Have a look and see how many times that word nations appears. It's there in verse 5, verse 11, verse 17, and again in the final two verses, 19 and 20. So what led David to write this psalm? Well, to find the answer, we actually need to look ahead to Psalm 10. And that's because it's very likely that Psalms 9 and 10 were originally one psalm. In Psalm 9, there's an acrostic pattern where verses of the psalm begin with successive letters of the alphabet, and or at least the Hebrew alphabet, and that same pattern is there towards the end of Psalm 10. Scholars would tell us that there are distinctive words that link the two psalms. And if you skim through your Bible from Psalm 3 to Psalm 32 you'll find that Psalm 10 is the only psalm that's there without its own heading. In the old Greek translation of the Bible or the Old Testament, they're set out as one. So when Psalm 9 ends with a final cry for God to act, we need to look at the opening verses of Psalm 10 to find the reason for David's distress. And it's there in Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It seems as if God is standing back and doing absolutely nothing to rescue his people. Psalm 10 verse 4 tells us that men are acting as if God doesn't exist. They think he's looking the other way, that he doesn't see what they're doing. They're free to be arrogant, verse 2. Complacent, Psalm 10, verse 6. To crush their victims, verse 10. It has a familiar ring, doesn't it? Psalm 10 conveys a picture of persecution, of the trampling of the poor and needy. And it's not just an individual being oppressed, it's a whole community, God's people, are under pressure. And yet, in the midst of this situation, David is still able to say, the Lord reigns. He's never forsaken those who seek him. And today, too, men and women carry on trusting in God in the most extreme circumstances. I'm going to pause for a moment and show you a video on the screen.
1: Today's leadership uh, of church in Eritrea uh, actually is uh, very difficult. It's very hard uh, to rule at this time because uh, who's the leader the next is going to be arrested. Well, the life in the prison is very challenging. Uh, sometimes we were chained, uh, and sometimes they were beating us with different hard uh, sticks. They were doing bad, to you, bad things upon the Christians, and they kept you for long time, for long years. That was with us. Really, we were praying there, Uh, we were fasting there as Christians, we were witnessing to others, and a number of people also, they were accepting Jesus Christ as their own, as he was, Uh, they were baptized even. generation what we are doing is uh we make them to prepare for the sufferings then we ask them do you believe jesus christ as your as your own uh, god then they they say yes i receive him but there is also a suffering you will be suffering you may found yourself into death you may find yourself into prison uh, which is like this way and they said that I'm ready, I want to be a witness of Jesus Christ, so uh, they don't afraid for the suffering today. Uh, they don't afraid to be uh, witnessing Jesus Christ in the streets, in the homes, for their relatives, for their families, for their neighbors. They are very tough in their Christianity, and they are so proud also, it's just a today. Is replacing such people, they are bringing such people. So the new generations are powerful generations.
0: As we watch that video, let's ask tonight what's the secret of David's trust in the midst of adversity? How do men like El that we've just seen on the screen carry on trusting and witnessing even in the face of persecution? And I want to suggest tonight that their secret lies in their deep knowledge of God. And we're going to look at this psalm and see how David's knowledge of God leads to praise, leads to certainty, to trust, and how it enables him and those in difficult circumstances and us to pray with confidence. So if you haven't got your Bible open, can you open it at Psalm 9 on page 546? And firstly, knowing God leads to praise. The first two verses David begins the psalm with praise because he can recall the ways in which God has acted in the past. He can remember God's wonders or, in other words, the things that simply leave us wondering at how great he is. He can praise God's name and in the Old Testament, a name is so much more than a label. A name is, conveys somebody's character. So to praise God's name is to praise him for who he is. And that knowledge lifts David's heart despite his circumstances. Yes, it does require an act of determination. I will praise you. I will tell. I will be glad. I will sing praise. But if we can focus on God in difficult situations, it does lead to praise. Today, as we praise our God for who he is and for all that he's done for us, we follow King Jesus, whose whole life was focused on bringing glory to God. He's the one who prayed the words, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Work that led him to a cross and Jesus leads us as we join God's people in praise of our God even in the face of suffering but for David and for Jesus praise involves telling God's wonders making him known to others that prayer of Jesus in John 17 continues with these words I have made you known to them And we'll continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. We join with our saviour whose spirit within us empowers us as we seek to tell of all that God has done for us. This week the holiday club team have been gathering in a circle at the end of each day and we've been sharing the ways in which we've seen God work, the answers to prayer. And it's easy to do that sitting in a group of Christians. But do we tell of God's wonders on Monday morning, in school, in the office, when we're talking with our friends, when we chat to our neighbours? We've just watched a video where even those facing persecution were saying the words, I'm ready. I want to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Secondly, in verses 3 to 8, knowing God leads to certainty. Verse 3 says, My enemies turn back. Yet it's quite clear when we were reading Psalm 10 that that hasn't yet happened. But David is so secure in his knowledge of God and what he's done in the past that he can write about the future as if it's already happened. And he's not talking about small, everyday incidents. For David, God is a God who rebukes nations, who destroys the wicked. Verses 3 to 6 go far beyond David's current situation. They speak of God's total victory, his ultimate reign of justice. Verse 7 tells us not simply that God will be on the throne one day at the end of time, but that he is on that throne now. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for justice. He is governing now, but in ways that we can't see. I wonder, though, if as we read that psalm, some of those words in verses 3 to 6 made you feel a bit uncomfortable. If that's the case, then ask yourself the question, can I believe in a good God if he doesn't deal with the perpetrators of evil? It might also help you to put the words on the lips of Jesus. Let's pray them with our Saviour. Jesus knew that his death secured the defeat of Satan. He approached the cross saying with confidence, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Thirdly, knowing God leads to trust. Verse 10 of our psalm says, those who know your name will trust in you. I wonder how often we put that the other way around. And we say, trust in God, trust in Jesus, and then you'll get to know him. But here, David is actually saying, the more we know God, the more we know his character, the more we can trust him. And that doesn't mean knowing him in some kind of intellectual way. It means knowing him with our heart and not with our head, or not simply with our head. It means relying on that knowledge in the way we live our lives. I could tell you that my husband is trustworthy, and you might believe that as a fact in your head, but I'm pretty sure that if he put an official Looking piece of paper in front of you, you'd want to read it before you signed it. I know my husband in a much deeper way. I know I can trust him completely, you might be pleased to know. So if he puts a piece of bank documentation in front of me, as he often does, I frequently sign it without reading it. I trust him and my trust shows in my actions. There is a big difference between trusting in our head and trusting with our heart. Trusting with our heart comes from knowing someone in an intimate way, and it shows in the way we act. I wonder whether we know God in that way. Do we like David... Have a deep trust because we know the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. David is telling us in this psalm that God is like a high, rocky spot that's inaccessible to enemies. He's somewhere safe that we can flee to when we're in trouble. On the cross, we see Jesus' complete trust in his heavenly Father. As he utters the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And today we can have complete trust in a Savior who says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Secondly, David knows that God is a judge. And that leads him to trust. Verse 16 carries on the thoughts that were there in verses 3 to 8. Tells us that God is known for his justice. The outcome of the wicked is so certain that it's spoken of as an accomplished fact. And a bit like a boomerang springs back to its sender. Their actions will return to them and cause their downfall. It's what Shakespeare calls being hoist by your own petard, blown up by your own bomb. Verse 17 contains one of the psalm's many mentions of the the word nations. Reminds us once more that God's justice encompasses the whole world. And on the lips of Jesus, these words become those of the one who entrusted himself totally to God. Peter reminds us that when they hurled insults at Jesus, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And in the same way today, the persecuted and the oppressed can leave judgment in the hands of the one who ultimately will judge all things justly. Finally, we see in verse 13 and verses 19 to 20 that David's deep knowledge of God leads him to pray. He knows God's character. He knows that God can perform wonders. And so in the later verses, we find two different kinds of prayer. Firstly, in verse 13, David prays for mercy. He knows God doesn't ignore the cry of the afflicted. And so we have a very personal cry in verse 13. O Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death. David is counting himself among the oppressed and is crying on behalf of himself and those he stands alongside. Isaiah tells us that Jesus poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Because Jesus stood in our place, took our sin, and was raised to life, those who trust in him can echo David's prayer for mercy. We can know with certainty that death has lost its hold. And if tonight you don't have that certainty, then please don't leave here without talking to me, talking to Richard, talking to someone you know about what it means to trust in Jesus. If you are a Christian, then I wonder if you noticed that in verse 14, David cries for mercy, not simply for his own sake, but so that he can praise God in the company of God's people. Tonight, as we worship, let's join Jesus, our praise leader, as we sing of God's great mercy to us. I wonder if you noticed that rather odd word, in italics at the end of verse 16, as you were glancing through the psalm. Like Salah, no one is actually quite sure what it means. But the most likely explanation is that it means meditate. I wonder if sometimes we're tempted to mindlessly read Scripture because we know we should. Do we actually take time to let it sink deep in our hearts? To meditate on its words? To really remember all that Jesus has done for us so that we can praise him and rejoice in our salvation? And then in the last two verses of this psalm, David prays for God to act. He wants God to do something. He looks around and he sees people who aren't simply saying that God doesn't exist, They're acting as if he doesn't exist. It means they're free to do as they wish because they think there'll be no consequences. Or at least that's their view. But David knows that isn't true. He wants God to show that he puts things right. He wants men to know that in comparison with God, they're frail and feeble The word for men here is the same word that's used in Psalm 8 that we looked at last week when David looks at creation and he realizes just how frail and feeble men are. Verses 19 and 20. Ring with an assurance that God will rescue. Just take a moment to reflect on Hebrews chapter 7, verse 5 on the screen. It tells us that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Today, God will hear the cry of the afflicted, who entrust themselves to King Jesus. The ultimate victory is his. In this country, we don't know what it is to experience the pressure that David was under in this psalm. We don't know the real meaning of the word persecution. But we can have that same deep knowledge of God. I wonder if our vision of God is big enough to give us an unshakable unshakable certainty and trust. Do we pray with the confidence that comes from knowing that our God reigns, that he is the God of the nations and not just our small corner of the world? Do we see world leaders as frail human beings in comparison with the power and might of our God? Do we trust in his justice and his ultimate control? If we do, then we should be echoing the prayer of verses 19 and 20 as we stand in the choir of King Jesus and pray for the oppressed, for the needy, for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Our knowledge of God, his character and the wonders he's done should lead us to pray big prayers. Prayers that stretch beyond our own individual situations, beyond our church, beyond our city and nation. Prayers that cry for God to act so that all men everywhere might know that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the death of Jesus we can know you We pray that you will help us to know you more. May our knowledge of you overflow with praise, with certainty, with trust. May it drive us to our knees as we pray for your kingdom to come in our lives, in our church in our city and nation and on earth. May men everywhere know that you reign. In the name of Jesus, amen.